0: How's everybody doing today? I tell you, I love the... Uh, as, as all of you probably know, as I say, um, because I admit, uh, I admit the truth. We're talking about the truth today. We're talking about the canonization. Uh, I can't sing at all. I have no musical ability. <clears throat> but I love the acoustics of this room. I love to hear you guys singing. It's wonderful. So... Uh, I'm going I'm to say a prayer, get us started, and then we'll open our Bibles. God, I come before you and ask for your help. Lord, I am presenting what many would say would be a very difficult sermon. It's The concept of canon is full of uh, snares and traps and false hallways. And God, I only do this because I know that your message will be delivered today. I'm trying to be faithful with your commandment to me. So, Lord, help me Fix my mistakes, cover my error. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we are talking about the canon, and I don't mean the thing that shoots metal balls at people. Right? That's with two ends. For those of us who cannot spell well, it has been interesting. Uh, every time I do a Google search, it's like, no, I really mean canon. Um, so, so this is uh, our second sermon in Jude. And, and it's actually kind of a, a sermon inspired by the study of Jude today. Because Jude <clears throat> uh, quotes, and, and we're going to get into this, but Jude quotes some extra biblical texts. and um, And that... To be honest with you, I think is why often a lot of people don't preach from Jude. Now, I think there are other reasons. It's a very short book, so there's, you know, you, you tend to referring yourself to lots of other things. But um, like I said last week, I, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Jude or sermon series on Jude until I sought that out. Um, so, I think that's interesting. Um, and, but I do think one of the reasons is it can get Uh, It can get a little complicated and it it can be intimidating. Uh, I'll be honest with you, it's intimidating to me to try to communicate how did we get this book? How did this end up in my hands? And how can I then trust that this book is the word of God? So uh, it is much easier for a pastor just to say that, hey, this is the word of God. And then let's move on. Let's open it up and let's start preaching. Um, But this sermon, particularly, I I want to preach um, intentionally so that we can know why we can trust that this is the word of God. So uh, if you will turn with me to 2 Peter, 2 Peter, the first chapter in 2 Peter. And this is in verse, this is verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. So this is Peter writing a letter. Uh, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For... When he received honor and glory from God, the father and the voice and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Our we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So, so I'm going to pause there. I'm going to pick up the next two verses in just a second. So what Peter is saying here is, we heard this. Uh, this is an eyewitness testimony. Hey, we're not just telling you these things about Jesus because they're made up myths. We were on the mountain. We heard the voice from heaven. That's great eyewitness testimony, right? Like, if you had someone in here, if Peter was standing here and, he, and you said, hey, did you really hear that? And he said, man, I did. Couldn't believe it. It was amazing. We saw this happen. You would think that would be the thing that Peter says, boom, that's the thing, right? You, you need to listen to me. You need to believe me because I was standing right next to him. Pick up in verse, verse 19. And we have something more sure So more sure than the eyewitness testimony of hearing the word of God say, this is Jesus in whom I'm well pleased. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever produced by the will for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This passage explains to us how we get Scripture. Now, my entirety, uh, you know, my my sermon here. uh, If if you had a long weekend, if you've got sick kids in the house, if if you've had a long night, if you couldn't sleep last night, I am going to give you the. I am going to give you a a little bit of section here. If you are going to, you know, if if you if you are struggling to stay awake, it's a little warm in here. If you are struggling to stay awake, listen to this first part, okay. God, so this is like the cliff notes, all right? God has given us his holy word and he will protect it. The original manuscripts were in, had no error, were inerrant, had no error, and were God breathed. The whole, the Old Testament that you hold in your hand is the same Old Testament that Jesus used when he walked the earth. Different language, obviously. The New Testament was recognized as authoritative and was used as scripture as when they were written. They were used as scripture And that was inside of the lifespan of the people who were the original followers of Christ. And were eyewitnesses of Jesus and his ministry on earth. Okay, we have a wonderfully true. So the, the other thing to remember is we have wonderfully true and useful translations of those original manuscripts. That can be trusted and and held up as the Word of God. So, I'm not giving you permission to go to sleep now, but if you do, you've got this, if you hear all those things and you say, Gotcha, I am 100% gotcha. Okay, maybe you can kind of tune out a little bit. Maybe you can look at the beautiful donkeys in the pasture over here. But I'm going to give you a a little reason why I wouldn't do that. And, And we'll talk through some of these things. Before I get into that, here's a warning. There's a lot of craziness out there about the canon. There is a lot. I have bumped into a lot of it over the last two weeks. Please don't just listen to the first YouTube video you find okay that you know got questions you know got answers website Wikipedia right when you hit Wikipedia and go I'm gonna look at the demo research I can I'm gonna hit Wikipedia please don't do that please don't do that I'm gonna give you a couple names if this is interesting to you write these names down and I'll give you I'll give you some more resources afterwards to talk to me but write these names down if this is interesting to you If you think anything I said today is wrong, which is distinctly possible, these, I'm I'm telling you, these are the resources that you should really lean into and say, hey, that didn't quite make sense or the way Cody said that didn't, I don't think, that can't be right. These are great resources to lean into to learn more about it. James Robert White. James Robert White. Michael J. Kruger? K-R-U-G-E-R, not Freddy Krueger, his brother Michael. Michael J. Krueger, all right? Robert Plummer, P-L-U-M-M-E-R, Robert Plummer, and Daniel B. Wallace, Daniel B. Wallace. So these are four men who know a lot about this, write the books about this stuff, okay? They are like presidents of seminaries and all this stuff. There is a ton of really good research. Uh, James White, Kruger, Plummer, Wallace, all of them have hours and hours of material. That's just them talking, lecturing, giving speeches at conferences. Um, All of them are also pastors. They're not just academics. They're all pastors. So there's... um, Not 100% sure about Wallace. He may not be a pastor. He may just be an academic. But the first three, White, Kruger, and and, uh, Plummer, all pastors that preach, that have sermons that connect this stuff. Wonderful, wonderful resources. Okay. So so that was my warning. Don't just go off and watch the first YouTube video you watch. Okay? So now, um, some reasons why you may not want to go to sleep. Okay? So when... When I was in college, I mentioned this last week, when I was in college I had started going to church with my, when my mom married my stepfather and I had been to church before then, but really not regularly kind of. So when they got married, he said these boys need to be in church. So he started taking us to the church that he uh, had gone to uh, for years. And it was a Southern Baptist Church, Calvary Baptist Church in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Uh, I've not been there in a long, long time, but That's what it was. And he took me to church. I grew up in the church. I I made a public profession of faith at a pretty young age. And grew up believing this was the Bible. This is God's word. and, And it's perfect. So fast forward. But got almost no real instruction. We had good sermons on Sunday morning. Not expositional. It was kind of topical. And other than that was nothing else, right? Sunday school was the same five stories rehashed all over and over and over. And that was it. So when I got to college at Maryville College Church, or Maryville College, um, it was uh, lightly affiliated with the Presbyterian Church. And I signed up. You had to take a Bible class. So I signed up for a New Testament. But the, the, the Bible classes were actually taught. My class was taught by an English professor. Uh, and that English professor, the very first day, says, hey, some of y'all probably grew up in churches that told you that this was, you know, God's word and there were no mistakes in it. And you could like trust it. And, uh, and, and isn't it funny that people still believe that? And went on to, to trash the Bible. And there were people in that class that their entire framework, they had hung their understanding of faith on crumbled. I dare say some of them probably took years to reconstruct that if they did. Now, I was prideful Cody York, and I just looked at this guy and said, hey, you studied this more than me, and 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 I get that but I choose to believe it's God's word. So I just kind of breathed through it. Like I just kind of like whatever. Now I would later deal with some of those questions that he brought up. But but it wasn't an immediate thing to me, but I watched a lot of people just absolutely struggle for years and years with what they heard in that class. Because and they heard things like, well, you know, the Bible wasn't really written until the late, 18, uh, late thir- uh, 300s, maybe even the four- 400s. Uh, it's full of mistakes. It's really just a creation of literature. And, uh, and, and you can't trust this as having any real authority. I mean, it might have some good ideas and some interesting things, but so does all these other literature books on the bookshelf. So you can read it, but I mean, you should treat it just the same way as you treat these other books. That's what I was taught. That's what a lot of people teach today. So the reason to kind of pay attention, that's really why I'm preaching this sermon. Because there are people out there that prey on the arrogance of youth. See, my arrogance kind of helped me. God was watching out for me. But a lot of, uh, a, a lot of people, a lot of, uh, I say college professors, but it's not just professors. It could be people you bump into at work, other people you bump into in different settings. They use the arrogance of youth and the desire to rebel, and that they use that, and they use the failure of Christian leaders and parents to properly equip the next generation to stand for the truth of Scripture. So they use those two things to confuse and sow seeds of distrust into the Word. So, If we don't talk about and teach about how we got these Bibles that are in our hands, if we don't do that, then our friends and our family and our teachers and our professors and the people at work, they are not ready to stand against the attack that the Bible will lodge against them. So... So first, I want to say God protects his word. 1 Peter one twenty three says that since you have been born again, <clears throat> not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The living and abiding word of God. Isaiah forty. Verse 8 tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. So as we talk about this today, you have got to remember that God chose the way he would deliver his word to his church. And this is how he did it. So... Uh, in researching this, I see so many people argue, particularly to atheists or even um, what I would call progressive Christians, Christians that, that don't think that this is the word of God. Uh, that, that's an oxymoron, probably. Um, but those, one of the very first attacks they put on the word is, well, if God wanted us to have a Bible that was perfect, why didn't he just deliver it to us? Why didn't, you know, he, he wrote out the Ten Commandments on the, on the mountain, right? Well, why didn't he write this in stone? Why isn't there some giant slab somewhere with everything carved into it? <clears throat> and, and I'll answer some of that, you know, logic of there's actually, you know, God doesn't do things for no reason. He's a God of order. And I think I have an answer to that, to that challenge, but mine is pure speculation. God chose to do it this way for his glory. I don't understand that. I don't have to understand that. That's not my job. It's my job to acknowledge that and to realize that I don't have to explain it to anybody. So, so that's the first thing that we need to remember as we go through this is this is how God chose to deliver the Bible to us. So so let's start talking about the actual canon. Let's talk first about the Old Testament. And guys, I am going to push the easy button when it comes to the Old Testament. Because Jesus and his disciples worshipped in synagogues. And they had the canon. They had the things they used as God's word in scripture. Now they had other things in the synagogue. There were other books. I think of a church library, right, when I grew up. The church library had a whole bunch of books into it. You know, we went to a, a church, in one place that had the book of Enoch on the, in the church library. And, and my opinion on that way it comes back and forth. But as long as you don't say that's God's word, you can have books on the shelf, right? Who in here likes C.S. Lewis? Who likes C.S. Lewis? Like almost everybody, right? C.S. Lewis is not scripture, but we can quote C.S. Lewis. There's truth in C.S. Lewis, right? We can quote it. Now we've got to keep it in its proper place. If you're quoting Narnia as if it, as if it's scripture, we got some issues, right? But when when hope comes to me and says, "Oh, this is what you know. This is what was said, and, and this made me think of Jesus when He said this, and it helped me understand the way Jesus." Yes, that's a proper use of. Norman, right C.S. Lewis so so in the synagogues they would have a particular place where they kept Scripture God's Word and those books are the same books we have slightly different order that doesn't really matter okay so so we have that pushing the easy button on Old Testament Jesus good enough for Jesus good enough for me okay so if he acknowledged that as being the the Old Testament that's good for me So, but talking about these other scriptures that are around, let's look at Jude 1, well, Jude 1, there's only one verse in Jude. Jude Jude 1, verse 14. Jude 1, verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Did I bring my water So here we see Jude, and Jude is quoting something. He's saying this, look, there's this guy, Enoch. He identifies the Enoch he's talking about, the seventh generation of Adam. And he says, Enoch prophesied this same. Well, that is not anywhere in the Old Testament. That is in, now this is, then again, this gets super weird because there's not a lot of, of historical manuscripts of the Book of Enoch, we'll talk about that in a second. <clears throat> but we're he, obviously Jude is quoting this thing, and it's it's First Enoch, and Enoch was a scripture that the Old Testament, that the Jews in Jesus' day, looked to and held to, not as scripture, but it wasn't scripture. But it was a really good writing, right? It's RCS Lewis, right? It's a scripture that it's a book of writing that they looked to and said, "This there's truth in this. There, we can learn from this." It's not the truth, but there is some truth. Okay, so so first, before we go any further, let's talk about who is Enoch. Who is Enoch? Right? Why do we even care? Enoch is is a biblical feat of figure, Genesis 5, 19 through 24, tells us, Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Now, um, there's this is one of the two examples in scripture where we look at scripture and it implies very clearly in my opinion that God just took Enoch. He didn't die. God just said, "I'm taking you with me." That's amazing first of all. Like That's that's amazing. But that shows you Enoch's character. He walked with God. This is someone who had a personal relationship with God. So much there, okay? But this is who Jude is referring to. And this was an actual person who was actually alive, who actually lived that long, and who actually walked with God. And God took him. So... Enoch is referring to, the, or, uh, Jude is referring to this book that has been attributed to Enoch. Now, first of all, uh, this guy lived 365 years. So did he have time to write a book? Sure he did, right? This culture was very oral. So for, for possibly thousands of years, a lot of the Bible was transmitted you know, Before Moses, the Bible was transmitted orally. So it's possible that Enoch did deliver parts of what was in the book of Enoch. So it's possible that some of that was actually Enoch. Maybe some of it is his children telling Enoch's story. We don't really know. So in here, Jude could either be referring to a piece of fiction, but common to other people. We see this in the New Testament, right? We see referring to a fictional work and using it to teach a story. I personally don't think that's what he's doing. I think that this actually happened, that this quote, this prophecy actually happened. It's actually from Enoch. And was passed down orally, and then I would say was in that in, in the book of Enoch. The problem with that is it's not a verbatim quote. So it appears as if it, because Enoch made the number in the book of Enoch, which by the way was lost for a long time. There's not tons of copies of it. There's actually very few copies of it. It's not a verbatim quote. Pretty much all scholars agree that the last half of Enoch is totally made up and was written much later than Jesus. So there's some real issues with the integrity of the manuscripts, the the limited, limited manuscripts of of Enoch. So, But I do believe that this was a prophecy that, that Jude is referring to. So, so, Enoch was obviously a scripture, was, was excuse me, it's obviously not scripture, but it was a revered writing that people thought hey, this is, this is something we can learn from. Um, interestingly enough, the, the, the few fragments of Enoch that exist do not have, they're, they're not in Hebrew. We've, we've never found uh, anything that's, um, you know, any, any collection of, you know, a large piece of manuscript that is Enoch, the book of Enoch, the first Enoch in Hebrew, which is a really interesting thing, right? Because the, the Jews were really good at keeping copies of the original stuff, right? They were really good at copying stuff over and over and over. They made very few mistakes. Uh, all right. So also... <clears throat> In Jude also quotes another extra biblical text. Jude 1 verse 9 says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, The context of this, I I think one of us is going to preach on it another time, but functionally, Jude's saying, the archangel, he didn't even rebuke Satan directly. The archangel said, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not going to rebuke you, I don't have the authority to. But the Lord rebuke you. This is an important reminder about authority and staying in the right place, which, by the way, is what all of Jude is about, is about authority and staying in your right place. So, so this is the, the lesson that Jude's trying to show us, trying to reinforce is, hey, so apparently, we can kind of read between the lines, it appears to us as if this was something that was going on in this church, that, you know, in, in the, the greater church that Jude is answering these behaviors about. Like people are, are saying things and, and and rebuking stuff and like taking this authority, getting out of their lane. So this is that's the context that Judah is using this. By the way, I keep saying Judah instead of Jude. They're the same thing. Judah is the the Jewish Hebrew way of pronouncing Jude. They pronounce the Judah. So forgive me if I go back and forth. I've listened to a lot of people who said Judah, so it's 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 gotten in my head. But we're talking about Jude. Um, so, so this quote, this, this story, it's not really a quote, it's a story. This is from a, a, a book called the, um, I want to pronounce it right. The Assumption of Moses or the Testimony of Moses. And it is even less substantiated than Enoch, as in like with historical things. We found one, manu- one fragment of a manuscript in Latin and it dates to the, 15- to the 500s. Now, obviously it was around, I mean, Judah talked about this, but, but this is a- another one of those things that people had talked about and we have a few references in uh, Jewish academia about these books but again, they're treated as other books written. Not no one has ever. I say no one. The, the the Jewish Church didn't consider these things to be sacred writings of God. Okay. So. So then we we talk about those things. I've, I've, that's kind of um, uh, you know the Old Testament quotes texts that don't <clears throat> that that aren't. Scripture, this actually happens throughout the Old Testament. Once you start looking at this, you find tons and tons of examples where a book will quote this other book, and sometimes they even give you the title. Like this says over here no one has that. No one, it didn't make it through history. God didn't protect it, God didn't see that it comes forward. It wasn't his word, it wasn't necessary. So, um, So uh, and so, it's important to remember that similar to the New Testament, quoting contemporary non-biblical writings was something that you did often to, to communicate things. So, um, so now you're thinking, oh my gosh, if that was easy, what's the New Testament look like? But that was easy. The Old Testament's easy. Did Jesus think this was scripture? If he did, I'm good with it's good with me. Good enough for Jesus. Good enough for me. All right, so now let's talk about the New Testament. The New Testament, uh, we've got to think about the way, again, the way that this is presented. Our whole way we think about this is going to determine how you understand and how you hear the things I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes. Because there's two ways to think about the New Testament. One is... How did the church decide what was the Bible? Right? How did the church grant what your other, the other thing you're saying is, how did the church authorize Scripture? The other side of that question, the other way to think about it, the correct way to think about it, is how did church recognize the authority of Scripture? You see the difference there? So um, if, if I'm a peasant in the 1400s and my king is riding with his retinue down the road and I'm working in the, in the field, I don't look up and say, hey, I authorize you to be my king. You are now my king. That's not how it works. That serf can say, hey, I recognize you as my king. But he's the king no matter what. And that's, what, that's the way to think about scripture. This was God's word when God breathed it. It was God's word from the second it was from ink hitting paper. God's word. Now, I can stand over here and say, well, because, you know, put it in my life. I didn't recognize this as being God's Word until I was like seven. Does that mean this wasn't God's Word until I said it seven? at seven? At age seven, yes, this is God's Word? No, of course. This was God's Word way before I was born. Same thing with the early church. So this is where that, that concept of The church didn't make, you know, the Bible wasn't written until the late 300s or the late 400s. No, no, no. That's when everybody, everybody agreed on recognizing the authority of them. Because some people were over here going, I don't want to recognize the authority of that. Or I really like this one. Why can't this be in the Bible? I want this in the Bible. But really, it wasn't an argument about who was, what was going to be in the Bible. The argument was over, are we going to recognize the authority of Scripture? So, so when we talk about all this, we talk about manuscripts. And <clears throat> manuscripts are just copies. Manual, man, manual, script, writing. So these are when people hand-wrote stuff. Because you've got to remember, there are no Xerox machines. There's no phones. to Take a picture of it and email it yourself so that you got it forever. People are having to physically make copies of things. So um, so when we think about historical manuscripts, we think about his history, we think of things like Julius Caesar. So who in here has heard about Julius Caesar? All right, I hope everybody raises their hands. Well, if not, we got some homeschool questions we've got to ask some people. So Julius Caesar, right? Everybody knows about Julius Caesar. and He conquered basically almost everybody, um, all of this stuff. Well, he wrote a thing about his success, which, by the way, that's a little shady when you write things about your own success. But he wrote about his success on the Gaelic War. The, the book was named On the Gaelic War. And it is a established fact that Judas Caesar conquered you know, Britain, right? Um The interesting thing is that we have 251 manuscripts all contributing to this, right? So we can look back and we found 251 handwritten things of that copy of what Jesus Caesar wrote. Some of them are portions. Some of them are the whole thing. But we found that many. The oldest one goes back to the 9th century. That is a long time ago. It's like, that's like year 1,000, right? So, so that's how we know that Rome conquered all these places. It was like 800 years after it happened, 1,000 years after it happened. But, but that's how we know. Think about that. There's about almost a 1,000 years in between the thing happening and the first copy that we had found, the earliest copy we had found. About a thousand years, and there's only 251 manuscripts. But it's a status fact. Everybody just status fact. Well, let's flash forward to the conservative estimates on the the New Testament. The New Testament. There are approximately five thousand eight hundred Greek manuscripts. There's an additional ten thousand Latin manuscripts and then a 9,300 other language manuscripts. So we have way more information about the New Testament than we do the Gaelic Wars. It's, It's not even in the ballpark. Now, each of these manuscripts, they may not be the whole Old Testament or New Testament. Remember, these are individual books, right? But there's five, there's... Almost, well, there's over 25,000 altogether and the Greek the original language ones is 5,800 so so you start to see that this isn't you know that this story that I was told about all these churches and all these errors being in all this stuff and there's no copies and we don't really know what the Bible says that, that's starting to, to fall apart so let's look at the, the argument that the Bible wasn't written until the 400s. The, the early church took these things, by the way, they were written by apostles or their followers, their, their associates, it's called. All of these are written by those people. They would have been handed out in real time. So it's not like the letter to the Corinthians was like spoiled away and didn't get to the Corinthians for another 100 years. No, the people he was writing to, he had talked to a year earlier, and these churches are all in hiding, right? They're in secret. So when they show up, and they're like, "You have a copy of, you have a copy of Matthew? Oh man, can I make a copy of that?" Oh yeah, we'll get some paper and we'll get, which would have been expensive by the way, but they they would have gotten that stuff and then God would have stole away for a while. And by the way, this is under persecution, right? Think of the church in China, hiding out and making handwritten copies of these letters, these books, and then taking that copy and going to their traveling, to their church. And maybe on the way, they went to another church and said, hey, by the way, I've got, got a copy of Matthew. Do you have Matthew? Oh, yeah, we've got Matthew, but hey, we have Luke too. Do you have Luke? Oh, my gosh, let me make a copy of Luke. So this is going on all throughout the ancient church, okay, the early church. And, and something that those who attack the word don't want you to realize is all of this, because they keep throwing out that 300 number, 300, 400 number. Because nobody's around to fact check. It's written four hundred years later. It's complete. That's complete fallacy. It's it's not true at all. Everything was written. Even the latest is by ninety. That's sixty years after Jesus' crucifixion, which sounds like a long time to some of y'all, but to some of us, it doesn't sound that long ago. Okay. But most of the New Testament, even the the. Secular scholars say, yeah, it was. they were finished in the 40s, just a, a decade after. And again, I'm not saying that the original was written a decade after. I'm saying the manuscripts we have date back to a decade after. Because we don't have any of the original manuscripts, which some people poke at. Well, if you don't have the original, how do you know it's real? Because we have... Thousands of copies that were based on the original. Quite honestly, and again, I am projecting onto God here. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to say this makes sense to me. Totally may be wrong, okay? It's not scripture. But it makes sense to me that God saw fit not to use the original. First of all, they were getting handled all the time. Hey, you want a copy? I've got the original mark. you got the original mark? Oh yeah, let me copy it. And then there's another guy showing up. Hey, man, can I, can I copy the original mark? Well, Kobe's copying it today, but he should be done sometime tomorrow. Then AJ can copy it. It's getting handled constantly. It's not like they have white gloves on and they're in like a great perfect environment and they're using screens and cameras. to. They're touching this stuff, putting it down on. They're clearing the dinner table off and putting the, the work down so they can work and they're folding it. And then there's a knock on the door. And it might be somebody trying to kill them. So they fold everything up and run and hide it. Or the church is getting persecuted and they say, hey, we've got to get our books gone. We've got to protect these books. So they fold everything up and hide it in some grain. And a guy's carrying a sack of grain that's got the, the original copy of Matthew in it. Like, this isn't like it is today. We've got to put ourselves in that spot so one, it makes total sense to me that these original manuscripts got destroyed. They were, they were getting copied. They were getting used. They were getting protected. But also, you it, from a security, so my day job's going to come in here, right? From a data security perspective, there's a concept called lots of copies make stuff safe. Because if I had the original, this is the original, the original. I have to guard this with everything. Because if you can change the original, you changed it. And there's no way to prove you didn't. A lot of people actually think it's better just to make a bunch of copies. I'll just have ten copies of it. And if you get and totally rewrite one, that's fine. My computer will just compare all the copies and throw out the changes that don't match. That's actually blockchain doesn't matter. That that stuff is is an amazing way to keep things consistent, to make sure that what you're looking at, because you don't have to control everything then, you can let it go because there's all these copies out there and they're going to get checked against each other constantly. The Quran is the opposite of this. The Quran, there was one copy and one guy who killed the other guys got the copy. I have the copy. And then he sent people to pick up all the duplicates. Because he said, all the duplicates are wrong. All the copies are wrong. I have the real one. I checked. They're all wrong. So collect them all and destroy them. I'll make you new ones. And he made new ones that were different than the old ones. But nobody could check because he's got the original. So there's some real questions on what got changed and what didn't throughout the history of the Quran. So, uh, so we see this, this concept makes sense to us, right? So the, the, the argument that there are a bunch of errors in the manuscripts, there are. There's tons of them. Error after error after error. Misspelled words. Jesus in front of Christ and Christ in front of Jesus. Commas in different places. Some places, no punctuation. Some capitalization differences. There's thousands and thousands of errors. But 99.9% of them are those things. Dropping a letter here. Dropping a note there. You know, Dropping a comma. All these little bitty things. that don't change any meaning to anything ever. And when you compare the bunches of copies, you clearly go, oh, that one misspelled something. And that misspelling got repeated up until here, until that guy saw another one and fixed the spelling. So these are people copying this down. Remember that. These are people. Okay, So so this idea that there is this rot full of errors, that's, again, a false thing to trick you. The question you've got to ask is, are any of the differences actually affect the meaning of the doctrine? Because that's what matters, right? So, this, you know, I misread stuff all the time. You all probably follow in your Bibles and while well, I read stuff and go, oh, well, he butchered that or he left out that word. But that stuff happens. That's normal with humans. But the question is, does it affect doctrine? And the answer is no. And it hasn't affected doctrine from the very beginning. So, Romans Romans 15, four tells us for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And that's what we are called to do is to have hope, to use the scripture, to have hope. John 14, 24 says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not my own, but the Father, whose, Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit from the Father, I will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit is the thing that made this, and it's making all this work. It's the thing that the original authors, that it's the the Holy Spirit used the original authors to speak the word. And then the Holy Spirit is preserving the word and even brings it to mind. Have you you ever been in a situation and started to say something, and then you said a verse? Maybe not verse, not maybe not quote the whole thing, but you said a passage of Scripture and you kind of thought, wow, where did that come from? Well, that's the Holy Spirit bringing to mind, right there, bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. That's what happens. So our faith is in the Holy Spirit to preserve. So so kind of moving through here as quick as I can. So the the, the church, the early church treated these things because another argument is that these were just letters. This wasn't Scripture from the beginning. And we're projecting, and this this Paul guy, like, this is all, not, this is not true. That is totally not true. The early churches treated these letters as Scripture. Second Peter 3 says, uh, verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as... Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So he's not right. Paul's not writing on his own wisdom. He's writing on the wisdom given to him. Verse 16. As he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters. When he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. It's good to know that even Peter was like, some of the stuff's hard, because that's how I feel. Which the, uh, with the ignorance and unstable twists of our own destruction as they do in other scripture. So here we have Peter seeing Paul's writings saying, yeah, that's Scripture. This is scripture affirming scripture, okay? And that they used it at the time of the writing as scripture. This didn't come along later. It's always been scripture. All right, so um, the, the real thing that we've got to ask ourselves, we are in the same boat as the early church. The early church had to decide if it was going to recognize the authority that they saw in the New Testament scripture. And we've got to ask ourselves the same question. Do I believe this is authoritative? That's really what all this comes down to. Do I believe this is authoritative? And if I do, how do how now do I live? We've got to do the same thing the New Testament church did. So so that's uh, that's what I want to leave you with. Is you have ultimately, you've got to decide, do I believe this is God's word? And if I do, what are the ramifications for my life?